Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Rosemary Lucy Hill about her new book, Gender, Metal and the Media, Women, Fans and the Gendered Experience of Music, which is published by Palgrave Macmillan. So welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me on. No, th- thanks for coming on. It's, um, it's great to be able to talk about this new book. Um, we were sort of talking a little bit earlier about um, how it's rare I've got a vested interest in a in an academic book, but yeah, as a as a sort of fan of the genre, I'm really uh, delighted that you've you've written it and you've taken quite a, a nuanced and critical approach. And I guess it'd be good to kick off with getting a sense of kind of where the book came from, um, you know, why you've written a book about gender metal in the media, um, and and I guess where it kind of fits into your your broader academic career as well. Yeah, well, I guess there's. The academic stuff, really, and there's the personal as well. Um, I'm a feminist scholar and I undertook my PhD in the Centre for Women's Studies at York in the UK. And um, like a lot of other uh, feminist scholars who are working towards PhDs, there's a kind of a personal element in the in the um in why, why people have chosen to study what they're doing. And for me, uh, I was really curious about fandom and about the obsessive nature of fandom. Um, and that re- that was really about my own experiences as, as a fan. But also, being a woman fan was partly about an experience of feeling kind of like you love something, but you're sort of excluded from it. When it comes to rock music, so much of that, um, that culture is sort of part of a, of a, a sort of a homosociality and, and uh, guys hanging out together, or as Corey Taylor puts it, men doing dumb shit. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, Dave. I was now I wasn't meant to swear. No, I'm, don't worry. I have, to, I have to blame Corey Taylor from Slipknot for that one. I mean, <laughs> but, it, um, it, the thing is that it's about it. Part so part of what I was. Um, wanting to do is about this personal sense of what's going on with rock music is not generally my own personal experiences. And that's really similar to the scholarship as well. So much of the scholarship is about men's experiences of uh, what it means to be interested in rock music. And so little about the kinds of um, feelings that I had and that I knew my friends had as well, which was about how can you ever say that you fancy a musician when basically all of the media says that you're a groupie in the first place and you don't really like the music. So to me, there was this big academic gap where um, it was really obvious that women's experiences of music were completely written out and how sexism impacts on women's experience was, was just ignored as if we all are able to have these same experiences of of, um, of being music fans, and that and that's just clearly not the case. Gender really does play an important part in shaping our experiences. 
Yeah, and it, yeah. It, it's funny that kind of Corey Taylor moment because that's probably a, a classic understanding or maybe misunderstanding of what what the genre is of that, you know, that kind of like sweary, masculine, loud, <laughs> you know, aggressive, um, which, you know, metal is all of those things. But also, um, as the book illustrates, those things are, you know, kind of nuanced in their reception, but also they're open, open to challenge as well. And I wonder, you know, you kind of said um, or gestured towards the idea musical experiences are shaped by gender. Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit about the two kind of key terms then, like this idea of what we're talking about when we talk about gender, but also actually what we talk about when we talk about metal as, you know, as genre or as a, you know, as a kind of like culture or um, a state of mind, a way of being. Because I think those two key terms um, provide quite a good introduction um, into the book. Okay. Well, um, also, they're, they're really massive terms, aren't they? Well, particularly yeah. gender. I mean, I don't know how many different versions there are of different definitions there are of gender, but there must be, oh, it's at least double figures, I reckon. Um, so in the book, I use one particular definition of gender, which is drawn from Chris, the work of Christine Delphi, who uh, is a materialist feminist from France. Um and that's and that's really thinking about gender as being a marker of division um, so that we're not thinking about gender as femininity and masculinity, that sort of social expression of some sort of biological fact. We're not thinking about it in those terms at all. We're thinking about it as a as a division itself that puts people into two groups so it gender is about uh, establishing a binary of people um this isn't this isn't actually um a very common way to define gender these days we um people tend to be much more influenced by the work of judith butler for example so i guess that's a bit unfashionable but it's still also a, quite a common sense way that people use gender in, in one of the in one of its many senses. Um, so when I talk about gender, I talk about that marker of division and the way in which people are being put in these two different categories of male and female. Um, is there anything else you want me to say about gender, Dave? Is, does that make sense? It, it makes sense perfectly and it, it's really clear. And also it, it's really useful because it sets up um, so many of the things that go on in the book actually about the relational nature of both how the genre kind of, you know, polices itself or, or what it likes to think about itself um, and then women's experiences as well. But I guess the other thing is, what is metal? <laughs> oh, this, is a, this is a surprisingly difficult question for me to answer um, because I think actually it's so often a, a very personal thing and it means, it means so much to so many different people. Um, so you've got the historical stuff. Um, in the UK, we talk about metal as being started by Black Sabbath in the late 60s with their first album, Black Sabbath. And the, what, the particular way in which they use the tritone at the start of Sabbath, bloody, uh, the start of the song Black Sabbath. Dun, dun, dun. And the tritone has that relationship with um, the devil and uh, because it used to be called the Devil's Interval, 
And uh, some people say it was banned by the church because of that, although that's debated. Uh, in the US, people talk about metal as being started by blue cheer because of their use of distortion and really, really um, low frequencies. Um, but, you know, that's that's a really sort of rough categorization. It's not as clear cut as that. But that kind of introduces some of the things that you understand of as being about metal, distortion, relationship with the devil. But what I haven't said is the relationship with the blues there. And, of course, heavy metal is part of rock music, and that has its same origins in the blues. So it's part of this sort of longer trajectory of popular music. Uh, and then there's a the thing of getting heavier and heavier and heavier as time goes on. And um, and for some bands, that's about moving away from the blues. And then there's the speed element as well and the virtuosity. And you get your typical instruments of uh, distorted guitars, drumming, fast and heavy, with very low frequencies on bass, increasingly being used. Um and then extremes of vocal style, so very high notes for men or very low notes for men and a lot of growling and distorted vocals as well. Um, and, of course, I'm talking about men making metal there. And it's not the case that all metal musicians are men. <laughs> and uh, And that, but... Oh, this is quite tricky, really, because there are female metal musicians. And it's really, really important that we mention bands like Girl School and um, Arch Enemy, of course, and the many different subgenres of metal, uh, which some of which include more women than others. But in the end, it is often characterized as being this masculine genre, which is about war and death and Satan again. But it's. That's just that's just one characterization of it. And actually, this genre can mean so many different things to so many different people. And it doesn't have to be read as a masculine kind of music either. So there's a lot going on with metal. Is, is that what makes it a kind of, um, I suppose, especially interesting case? Well, one of the things that the book kicks off with is the idea that all musical experiences are shaped by gender. Um, and the book, I think, illustrates really well why metal is is so kind of interesting about that. But even in trying to kind of uh, describe what metal is, you've had to immediately go to uh, this question of, of gender and, and the relationships and also the boundaries drawn between the, you know, the kind of masculine themes or supposedly masculine themes, um, the predominance of men, the interest in loudness and speed and stuff like this. So is that the kind of like, is that why it's an interesting case? Yeah, I think so. Um, it's interesting in terms of what masculinity means in the world and what masculinity means to people. And that, and when I talk about what masculinity means to people, I'm talking also about what it means for women to be, um, to be interested in that, interested in the sounds of that. And to think about masculinity then as being a set of attributes that you can pick off the shelf. And uh, there's a fantastic book by Amber Clifford Napoleoni called um, Queerness in Metal. And she talks, she does use a, um, a Judith Butlerian sort of framework for thinking about what gender means. And 
in the, her book, she uh, unpicks masculinity from the male body and talks about it as a performance. I think this is also a really useful way of understanding what's going on with metal, because in that sense, then you can start to see how masculinity itself can be valuable in lots of different ways for lots of different people and not just for particular particularly masculine men, but also for men who don't already feel very masculine, you know, the nerdy types, for example. And for women who feel that femininity is difficult or doesn't fit them. So it's particularly interesting in those ways, but also because, um, and this is something that you mentioned before we came on air, the absurdity of that kind of metal and the humour and the irony and the parody those things are really, really interesting as well. Um, and that's not something that I particularly talk about in the book, but there's so but without thinking about metal as being a genre that involves a heck of a lot of humor and and self-reflective humor as well, it's it's not really straightforward to understand. You can't just read it as simply this masculine thing. There's so much more going on about humour um, and about gender and about what gender means. And in, you can read that in a lot of different ways. To come back to the idea of um, musical experience being shaped by gender, um, I think this is, a, this is a point that hasn't really been made before. This, and this is really, really crucial. So a lot of work about popular music and about culture in general tends to use um, Bourdieu's work, and that's thinking about class in particular, thinking about the way that taste is shaped by class. Taste is also shaped by gender, but also the meaning-making practices that go on when we engage with culture are fundamentally shaped by gender as well, by our own gender, by the gendered milieu that we live in, by the genders of the producers. All of these things matter and um, and make for different experiences between people. So uh, in the book, I talk about my experiences and my brother's experiences of listening to the same bands. And there, there they are. You know, we share the same passions for the same band, but those passions are shaped in different ways and we're interested in different things when we're listening. So, for example, when he listens to a band like Hayseed Dixie, he's interested in the the humorous uh, retelling of these stories from um, of these classic songs like ACDC songs in a bluegrass way. And I'm interested in the way that they might um, be parodying some of the elements of the original songs and how they might be playing around with the gendering of, of particular songs. So the, our different perspectives aren't, are, are definitely shaped by our gendered um, experiences in the world. One of the terms you use to kind of draw, I suppose, boundaries around um, this sprawling um, set of questions about things like genre or um, questions about musical experience, taste, um, the kind of embodied nature of music, is, is this idea about an imagined community of metal. Um, and it'd be interesting to hear, I guess, kind of what that term means and where, um, where it draws boundaries around the genre because it becomes really important in your um, construction of, I guess, four kind of myths that underpin that imaginary community and then 
um, interact really, really strongly and really obviously with gender. So, yeah, could, could you tell me a bit about the imaginary community of Mel? Yeah. OK, I went to see Iron Maiden um, a few weeks ago at Leeds Arena. It was a really great show. And um, towards the end of the gig, um, Bruce Dickinson stands up and talks about the way that it doesn't matter um who we are outside of the concert it doesn't matter what our race is what class we are what sexuality we are or how old we are we're all one under the banner of iron maiden we're all the same and we're all there for the same reasons and it's this really lovely moment of um of a feeling of all being together and being as one being together in a community it's lovely um and I think one thing that the the music media does and the metal media does is it works hard to try and create this sense of of people who like the same music having a very a very similar sort of sense of the world and a sense of themselves as being one and of course that that sense of themselves as one or ourselves as one I should say doesn't just stop at liking the music it's kind of about a shared set of values and a shared way in which we imagine our place in the world and, our, and ourselves together and a sense of ourselves as being the same on more grounds than just liking the music. Does that make sense? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We are, yeah, we're, we're more than just the music, but the music is what brings us together. So that's, that's really, really interesting. And in the um, in the book, I talk about my research with um, with the with the music media, and what you get on the letters pages in particular is people writing in saying about how how great it is that we're all one and we're all together, and and you get these letters as well on lines of race and on class, not so much class, particularly race and particularly gender, about how. You know, when something awful happens, like somebody says, I experienced racism, everybody else piles and says, but this isn't the norm, is it? This is just an unusual thing. And this is this isn't what it's normally like, because normally we're all together. And what matters is that we all like the same music. So we get this nice, warm glow of community. But it's it's, you know, it's mythical. These are starting to think about the four myths that you mentioned. It's mythical because it's not real. You know, we aren't actually we we are very different. And it is only the music that might bring us together. And even then, as I said earlier, we're not going to have different experiences of the music. That doesn't mean that it's not important for people or felt as something that's valuable or in some cases felt as something which saves people's lives. Um, My Chemical Romance fans talk about that a lot, how the community of fans help them through very dark times, for example. But it isn't um, it, it isn't a kind of sort of a very solid sense of community. It's it's quite fuzzy. So these four myths, shall I talk about those? Yeah, I mean, in particular, the equality myth is is fascinating because I think one of the things the book does really subtly, actually, around equality and authenticity, which seemingly, you know, are not as gendered as ideas about warriors and groupies, is just to, to position, as you've just done there, you know, the idea that actually these commitments to equality and authenticity serve to actually stop 
debates about what's problematic in metal. You know, Iron Maiden are attached to uh, what you might think of as kind of highly nationalistic images um, yeah. around Britishness yeah. that, you know, draw on kind of um, things from uh, Britain's colonial past that probably aren't, you know, they're just not good. Um, and yet, you know, um, they're presented as being kind of like, we're all equal, you know, under the Union Jack banner and red coat of Iron Maiden. So it's, yeah, it, it's interesting, these um, equality and authenticity ideas, which seemingly um, aren't as, uh, I guess, kind of invested with, with gendered uh, norms and, and, and concepts as warriors and groupies, which are the other two four myths. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, in thinking about this myth of equality, then, uh, in particular, thinking about it in terms of gender. Although you're absolutely right about about the uses of Iron Maiden, that it's something that um, the people need to be paying attention to and taking care around. I think. Um, but one of the the thing about gender is that the myth of equality tells us that we're all equal and therefore that we're all starting from this sort of level playing field in the first place. As a result, we all have the same opportunities and, um, and we can do the same things. And that sort of, that starting point is this love of the music. And it, it doesn't work in practice because women don't start on the same level as, as male metal fans. Women always start as being questioned about whether they are fan enough, whether they know uh, enough about the music that they profess to like, or whether they do just fancy Bruce Dickinson, for example. <laughs> um, but the idea of equality is really, really powerful. So there's uh, there was one particular letter that was really striking um, that I studied, um, that I talk about a bit in the book. And it was about, um, it was an interview with Lindsay from Mindless Self-Indulgence, and she was talking about the sexism that her and her bandmates had faced being um, women musicians in metal. And the response in the letters pages was somebody saying, oh, actually, she's the one that's thinking like a sexist because she's saying that she can't do things because she's a woman. Now, this is a complete misreading of what Lindsay was trying to say, which was to offer a feminist perspective on the structural problems that women face, which are widely recognised, right, in, in understandings of the music industry when it comes to gender in, in academia. This letter, written by somebody else saying, I never thought that I couldn't do something because I'm a woman, this was given Star, um, star of the Week status star letter so basically the magazine is reinforcing this idea that this is an equal genre and an equal culture and gender doesn't matter here and we don't need to talk about feminism because things are already equal what that kind of attitude actually does is it stops you from being able to talk about what needs to be done how how we could actually work towards some sense of equality and it's 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 really disappointing, but I guess it's not just a problem with metal. This is a problem with a wider society that says that it's already equal. Um, that as soon as you start to talk about something as already equal, what you actually do is hide 
the problems and say that they are the problems of an individual rather than the, the broader um, systematic or systemic or structural problems. So this is quite worrying. When it comes to authenticity, again, what is seen to be authentic is typically seen as what is associated with men. And this is a this is something that um, Sarah Thornton's work on club cultures is really helpful for understanding in in thinking about the mainstream subculture divide. And although I'm quite critical of subcultural theory in general, um, this is this is a really helpful idea to think about the ways in which sub to which, which mainstream is uh, thought of as this thing which is manufactured and um, formulaic and doesn't have value and um, and this is based um, this is based really on older ideas that Andreas Hewson pulls out about the gendering of art and how important masculinity is to understanding art. And then we can think about how uh, when women make any kind of art, that's kind of given a lesser status than that made by men, typically. So this myth of authenticity that that heavy metal and hard rock, this is authentic music. It comes from the heart and um, it's not manufactured. It's emotionally raw and vital and of the people. This is quite a, a, a dangerous kind of idea that has these gendered connotations. It's also problematic, though, because it, you know, it falls into this old sort of binary with pop music, and then whatever women do is is always um, treated as if it's not authentic or important. And women's fandom, then as well, is fitting into this sense of it not being genuine and it's being put on and just done for effect. And when um, when My Chemical Romance were big in the early 2000s, um, they were, the fans were treated by uh, other fans of other genres as if they were just doing this for the fashion, as if they weren't interested in the music at all. It was just a fad, a fashion fad. So... The whole thing is sort of part and parcel of quite um, a sexist ideology that underpins metal and rock music that really disadvantages women fans and women musicians and other women who are working in the industry. So that's those two myths, Dave, <laughs> without even thinking about the warrior and the groupie, as you say. Actually, you know, those things which don't seem gendered are deeply, deeply gendered. Yeah, whereas... The axis of warrior and groupie, I suppose, is really almost kind of easy to read uh, in gendered terms that, you know, the men um, who are deemed to be making this music, who are, you know, deemed to be the kind of like the only um, people who are on stage or are backstage or, you know, are kind of producing the music have this status as, uh, as warriors with, you know, the encoded versions of uh, masculinity attached. And then women seemingly are, uh, painted as only ever groupies, but also crucially then, you know, aren't the ones who make music, aren't running record companies, you know, aren't uh, acting as roadies or engineers or, or anything like this. So, yeah, I, I, I guess, you know, if you could give a flavour of that division, because obviously it's crucial to un understand how um, that division in particular is sort of challenged, um, played around with and, and negotiated by women. 
Um, okay, so you said that it's more obvious, and I think it is obvious when you start looking. Um, but for a lot of people, it they don't necessarily notice, and it has this sort of sense of um, it goes in unconsciously, and people don't read it and they don't acknowledge it, but it's there at the back of the mind. So, who looks like a musician? Men look like musicians, and in metal, they are probably wearing black. It's very likely that they'll have long hair and tattoos. And they, they might be um, very well built as well, for example. These kinds of ideas sort of sink in unconsciously so that when women and are on stage, they look kind of weird and they look out of place as if they shouldn't be there and they certainly shouldn't be playing guitar and they shouldn't be behind a drum kit. And these kinds of ideas just sort of permeate our unconsciouses without us recognising what's happened. Now, when you do start to look and you do start to notice, it's really, as you say, it becomes really obvious that men are musicians and women are fans. But it doesn't have to be that way. And I think um, we need to be really conscious of how particular Bands get put on time and again in the industry and, uh, and about who's got responsibility for um, who is uh, put on at festivals and who gets interviews in magazines and whose work is being publicised. And, um, and because this genre of hard rock and metal is seen to be very masculine and because women look like they are outsiders when they're on the stage... When women are making rock music and metal music, they are not treated to the same kinds of financial um, backing as male bands. And they are also subject to uh, company uh, record companies trying to um, use them in ways which sexualize them. Now, this isn't so much something I talk about the book because the book is mostly about fans. But I think it's really important to think about about that split between fans and musicians. And actually, typically in metal, most of the musicians started as fans. And many, many fans play instruments as well. But again, we're talking about male musicians and male fans that, that divide isn't as strong as perhaps you would think about it. But when it comes to women, it is a fairly strong division and it looks strong. And also there's some research that shows women aren't playing the same kinds of instruments as well. Um, Sarah Shacker's work shows that women metal fans are more likely to play classical instruments than male metal fans, for example. But moving on to what it means for women fans, apart from keeping them off the stage... There's this problem of women fans being seen to be only interested in the genre because they want to sleep with musicians. And this is what I call the myth of the groupie, because the women I spoke to next to none of them said that they wanted to be groupies or that they wanted to sleep with male musicians. They were all of them. All of them were interested in the genre because they liked the music. <laughs> and I think that might sound a bit ridiculous for me to even say that. But the amount of times that women get 
challenged over their fandom. And this isn't even just about music. This is even thinking about football fans, for example. The idea that women aren't serious fans. But, you know, that all of the women that I spoke to liked the music. That was the number one thing that they were interested in. Some of them did fancy musicians, but that doesn't mean that they are therefore available to sleep with musicians at the drop of a hat. For it. Um, so that that's an important point to make, I think. The other problem is that this sense that all women fans are groupies has a wider has a wider sort of cultural framework, which some people might call rape culture, in which women are seen to be available for sex at any time, but also that they probably want it, whether they really want it or not. Now, in, in, the, um, in the magazines that I was looking at, what I was seeing was pictures of very young women in their, in their mid-teens being held onto by older, taller male musicians. And, you know, they were, had their arms around them and there was big grins. But there was, a, you know, there's a problem here in this image, especially when you think about the um, recent revelations of sexual exploitation by people like Jimmy Savile, who in the 1960s and 1970s was a key figure on British television uh, presenting Top of the Pops, who when was revealed after his death to have sexually abused and raped hundreds and hundreds of women and some men as well. Part of that was through his work for the BBC at Top of the Pops, which is really, really horrendous. But that led to that this wider um, police operation that uncovered a huge amount of sexual exploitation of women by pop and rock musicians. And this idea of the groupie and the groupie culture has ended up sort of being part of this world of sexual exploitation, which means that women fans remain at risk of, um, of sexual exploitation by musicians. And meanwhile, the genre itself is sort of held up by an idea of rock musicians' prowess, sexual prowess, as if that they should be doing this. So it's, it's deeply worrying, really, um, on so many levels. And it puts women at risk. And when I talk to women about this idea of the groupie, and I, I would ask them, so would you like to meet the musicians that you like? And some of them were saying, mm, I'm not sure about that because I don't know what I would say to them and I'd wonder what was going to happen. And there was a definite sort of second guessing of, of what their intentions might be seen as. They could never view, they could never view such a meeting as being um, one in which they would be able to just be open and honest with a musician, but they would be on their guard about what the potential might be and what their um, what their their motives might be for being there. The book goes into a lot more detail about the yeah the kind of negotiations or challenges for the groupie myth, and as you you've kind of highlighted as well the um, the kinds of pleasures um, of listening to metal. Um, I guess as we kind of draw to a conclusion, I might pick up on something that comes towards the end of the book, which is the way that metal was counterposed with mainstream um, experiences 
um, particularly as a way of kind of disrupting ideas about sexism. So um, one of the kind of, I guess, the sort of stories across the book is the interaction between egalitarianism and sexism in metal. But as you've already mentioned, you know, we live in a kind of sexist um, society. And so it was really interesting in the sixth chapter, the sense that um, women were able to say, whilst there are all of these kind of problems with metal, actually, when I've had bad experiences, they've been in mainstream places. So experiences of things like sexual harassment were almost kind of counterposed with actually metal is a safe space. It just carries with it a lot of um, kind of problematic assumptions. Yeah, yeah, I think this is this is really interesting. I think there's lots of um, there's lots of reasons why somebody might say that the um, genre of music that they particularly love isn't sexist, and you, that we might think hard about and that we might second guess. Uh, but when it comes down to it, the women that I spoke to knew what they were talking about because they live in a sexist world, so they know what counts as sexism. And um, and when they said to me, yes, I have experienced sexism, but I've experienced it mostly uh, when I've been out in mainstream venues at, um, at club nights where they play pop music, for example. We have to take that seriously and um, we have to think about about what that really means. And it's really interesting to think that Actually, even in spite of all those problems of this notional myth of equality that metal might have, that that myth actually might be sometimes helpful for women in enabling them to be in a space where they don't necessarily have to think about their gender very much, where they can be there and they can just enjoy the music on the same terms as anybody else, even if it's a different experience that, that it can be much less about gender also that that space might be shaped by that idea of equality that might suggest to the people that might have thought about or might have in other places committed some kind of sexual harassment maybe that they wouldn't do that in a metal space because that's not what you do there that that sense of equality therefore might have some offer some level of protection and I don't know about this you know this is this is this is a theory that I have really and and I'd love to do more research and find out more about this and hear about what other kinds of spaces are like where they have this notional equality and find out what it means for experiences but there's a lot going on um there's a lot going on at a metal gig and that we can definitely say there is things happening which are definitely sexist. But if there are fewer sexist things happening, then that's definitely a good thing, right? But on the other hand, sexism isn't exactly easy to always identify. So there are things which are easy to identify, in particular sexual harassment. And so the women I spoke to talked a lot about that. And that's the particular sexism that they were able to identify. But things like... Um, the use of space and how um, how men tend to take uh, so I'm talking about at a concert how men tend to take up that space in front of the stage young men I should say and how um, women get pushed to the back and to the sides of the concert 
room so that they're not in the mosh pit. Now, some of the women I spoke to talked to that about not wanting to go into the pit as being their own personal choice. And it might be in part their own personal choice. But on the other hand, it's not a choice that isn't shaped by gender. It, it's fundamentally shaped by those young men's particular ex- exuberance and uh, wanting to mosh. And the and perceptions of women as not being part of that, um, in a sense, too vulnerable, not wanting not wanting women to be getting hurt. So my good friend and colleague Gabrielle Richards has written about this being pushed out of the mosh pit, for example, because men don't want to hurt women. <laughs> so they push them out rather than include them even though that would be what women, the women coming into the pit wanted to be part of that exuberant dancing um, pseudo-violent space. But, you know, when you think about what the Riot Girl movement did, that was a sense of reordering the audience to enable women to get a better view, to stand nearer the front, to have the space in which they wanted to dance. And it's only really through thinking about different ways of ordering the space at the gig that we might be able to understand some of the sexisms within metal and that one in particular as being as being sexist. And my interviewees hadn't had that that other experience of seeing how differently things could be done so that they didn't recognize the metal space as one that was shaped by gender and I think that I think that's really um, a really important point that if we're to understand how metal might approach this kind of equality that it that it claims it already has, it actually might achieve that. Then it desperately needs to have um, feminist and uh, other perspectives, raced perspectives on what's going on within the community and what's going on within the spaces. To enable us to be able to think about how to do things differently and how we might be able to to change those sexist and racist practices. That's where I think science fiction is something that's really helpful. And Donna Haraway talks about science fiction as a way to imagine new worlds. And Metal, of course, is super interested in science fiction. You hear science fiction um, themes in so many different songs by so many different bands. Mainstream science fiction has never been very good at doing a different take on gender, but there's some incredible feminist science fiction um, that thinks about what future worlds might be like in a very positive sense, as well as the kind of Handmaid's tale version of, of science fiction. At the end of the book, I start to think about what, what we might do to make metal a, a more equal space how we can preserve what we love about the genre the um these hard sounds these uh, songs of uh violence and anger which are not just exclusively masculine qualities for example and how we might be able to do though to do metal in a way which is um which is accepting of women rather than of pushing women out. That was one of the things that was great about the end of the book, actually, those recommendations and the sense of kind of, on the one hand, there are practical things that can be done, but also, you know, 
a challenge to, to metal and the uh, imagined community to kind of live up to uh, to to the claims it makes, you know, to kind of fulfil um, Iron Maiden's egalitarianism, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose the place to finish is in terms of your work kind of going forward, the kind of investment, you know, and the personal element of the research that really, you know, is clear in the book means that I guess you'll never stop kind of, you know, thinking about these issues around metal, but, you know, are you kind of working on sort of broader themes? Are you doing, you know, the kind of, I suppose, follow-ups you were talking about in terms of thinking about the use of space? Um, or is it, you know, a kind of classic now for something completely different? <laughs> well, I've done my completely different. After um, after I finished my the research for this book, I did a project on data visualisations. So um, I've now sort of come back to... Um, come back to thinking about music and gender. And I've been working with a colleague called Heather Savini on um, music and sexual violence. And we've come to that 1985 Senate hearing in America on record labeling, which was about the Parents Music Resource Center and how they wanted to get those stickers onto records that say explicit lyrics. And we've been looking at how the hearing itself and um, the discourses around that hearing have totally ignored, really, what the PMRC were actually saying, what they actually wanted. You know, they didn't actually want censorship. They wanted more information. They wanted the lyrics to be available. And if you think about metal, if you make the lyrics available, then probably that's going to be people encountering the lyrics for the first time because, you know, so many songs you can never hear what the singers are actually singing about anyway we've been working on thinking about how this discourse of censorship has been used and the discourse of free speech as well that goes alongside that has been used to further patriarchal backlash really um against campaigning for increased women's rights and in, and better representations of women because one of the PMRC's big worries was that the amount of sexual violence in in rock music so I've been working on that um, and that's been um, really well received by other metal scholars and we've um, we're hoping that um, uh, we'll our article will be published in the not too distant future on that. And we're also then taking up that theme and continuing to think about sexual violence in rock music. And we are um, putting together a bit at the moment for some money to look at songs over time and see what's been happening over the last sort of 30 years, really, since that record labelling Senate hearing in 1985. Back to the future, I guess. <laughs> Thanks for listening to New Books in Political Theory. I've been your host, Dr. David O'Brien. On this episode, I was talking to Rosemary Lucy Hill, a lecturer in sociology from the University of Leeds, about gender, metal, and the media, women fans, and the gendered experience in music.